Hi, I'm David Dodge with Green Energy Futures. Talk is cheap, and you know, it especially applies to all those climate plans that have been developed around the world where lofty goals are set and the goals are never met. It turns out that some of the best climate plans in the world are actually being created by cities. Oslo, Norway has incorporated climate right into the budget of their city and they're knocking climate action out of the park. Today, we're going to talk to the head of the Oslo Climate Agency to find out why and how this is working. Hi, I'm Heidi Sorensen. I'm the head of the Climate Agency in Oslo. So my task is to get sure that the city reduce its climate emissions by 95% by 2030. Well, I'm really happy to be interviewing you, Heidi, because uh, I don't know if you know, but from faraway places like Canada, uh, you know, we look at Norway and and all of those countries with admiration for the action they're taking. So um, I've heard that Oslo has a pretty aggressive climate plan. In, In brief, what is it and what are the goals? I think the first thing I will say is that it's not a plan. We have a strategy and then we have a climate budget. As a former politician, I have been involved in making many climate actions plans. And when they're finished, they're kind of throwing you out in the society and see what's happening. The climate budget is different. And I think that the key to our success is that it is a budget uh, which is measured in terms of CO2 emissions, and it is fully integrated in the municipal budget. And like the financial budget, the climate budget is the responsibility of the deputy mayor of finance. So every year we calculate what needs to be done to achieve our ambitious climate goals. That's, I think, it's the key. It's a governance system that is necessary to have uh, put climate in the very center of policymaking. And uh, obviously, that's the crux of what we'd like to talk about today, and we'll dive into that uh, deeply in a second. But I think for context, help us mm-hmm. understand what your sources of emissions are. What what are the key, the top sources of emissions that you're trying to tackle? Transportation. It stands for approximately half of it. And then we have uh, <coughs> waste, which is um, uh, a good chunk as well. And then the third biggest sector is the construction set, uh, sector. When I started six years ago, uh, it used to be a lot of emissions from uh, uh, heating sector. But uh, since oil uh, pan is forbidden, so we have re- removed that source of uh, climate emissions totally. So now the three left is transportation, it's waste, and it's the construction sites. That's interesting. So what uh, what did you replace heating with? Uh, heating pumps, uh, electricity, uh, and uh, solar and biomass. So it's the, it, it, the work started uh, in, I think, 20, more than 20 years ago, and it was uh, forbidden from 2019. So now it's, no, it's history. It's so good to have uh, an emission source that is basically gone. Interesting. And, and that's probably why transportation is bigger now. It's because you've reduced your heating. <laughs> where, I, where, I come from, <clears throat> where I come from, uh, our city says our emissions, they, you know, at the highest level, they say they come mm-hmm. from, it comes from transportation. 
one third, mm. industry one third, and buildings one third. And so, yeah. uh, um, so we're still working on the buildings thing. Yeah. <laughs> what What are you doing in transportation? You guys are well known for this, actually. So t- tell us what you're doing. Well, we have a plan for electrification of the transport transportation sector, and uh, I think the numbers we see now. A few will have anticipated that 10 years ago. If you look at the passenger cars, 82% of new passenger cars in Oslo are fully electric. And 36% of new vans have uh, been electric into 2022. And I think even better, because this has been the difficult part, even as a 30% of new heavy vehicles have been zero emission or biogas in 2022. So, it is possible to change. So it's still a way to go, but uh, I think we are on a good track. So is that because your success in that area, is that because you get a lot of national support as well? I think it's a combination. Uh, of course, uh, there's been uh, uh, a national VAT exception, so which have been important. and But uh, there have been other things as well. For instance, you know, we have a toll ring in Oslo and uh, electrical vehicles have, in the beginning, every one of them uh, went there uh, freely without paying. Now there are so many electrical cars that they can't go for free anymore, but they are paying less than half the price of a fossil fuel car. And all the vans and all the heavy vehicles are entering for free if they are electric or zero emission or biogas. And that's a very strong incentive and been important. And then, of course, uh, charging was a big issue. So we have been helping uh, to build chargers both for um, passenger cars, but also for heavy vehicles and have invested in that. So that that to have a good network of charging points is has been one of the I think jobs that the municipality has done that has been extremely important. You know, it's kind of ironic, Heidi, because uh, your you say the benefits are it's twice as cheap to fuel up an electric car. Yeah, your electricity prices are fairly high, aren't they? Yes, but still, there the fossil fuels are way beyond in prices anyway. So there's a there's still a long way to go to see that electricity is uh, electricity compete with fossil fuels uh, uh, and it's much cheaper to drive an electric car than to drive uh, uh, a fossil fuel car. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the combustion engine in a fossil car is very ineffective. It only uses approximately 35% of the energy in the gasoline, while an electric car uses more than 90% of the electricity in an electric car. So by switching, by leaving the combustion engine for kind of the history books, you're also saving a lot of energy. So the one other area of background I'd like to touch on, and, and because this is different for us, we don't do waste incineration. You list waste incineration, but I think it's it's also bundled with energy supply. What, yeah. What's the breakdown there, and, and why are the emissions high there? Uh, even though we do our best to recycle plastic, there are still plastic that will be burned. 
So <clears throat> we have more than uh, 20% of the uh, CO2 emissions from Oslo is from the incineration plants. But luckily, uh, and this is uh, due to very, very hard work, uh, one year ago, the city council decided that we should invest in a carbon capture and storage facility on the biggest incineration plant. So that was a very important, uh, uh, very, very important decision and will remove approximately 17% of the city's total CO2 emissions. So that will be a big chunk of help when it's coming to, uh, when it will start working from 2026, 2027. Well, I'd love to dive into those things, uh, but my curiosity will be the death of this interview, so I can't. <laughs> Let's move to the uh, the the topic du jour, which is uh, carbon budget. So let's yeah. start again there. Uh, Oslo is a pioneer here and is widely recognized around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, C40 holds you guys up as the poster children of uh, mm -hmm. budgeting. So what are you guys doing at a very high level? Just start again on the climate budget. Um, the, uh, we invented the climate budget. The first climate budget of Oslo was uh, made in 2020, 2016. And as far as we know, that is the first climate budget in the world. So uh, since then, it has been evolved into the most important governance tool for us. It structures and organizes how we get from climate policies, targets and words to action and actual results. So uh, I think a very important thing about it is that it makes all part of the city administration stakeholders in the climate goals. It's not only the climate uh, agency. We don't, uh, we don't own the actual measures. That is owned by all the other agencies that are out there. So with the climate budget, they become stakeholders and they are proud of their actually when they are reaching the goals and implementing their measures. So it's measured in terms of CO2 emissions. It's fully integrated in the municipal budget. So when the city council adopts the yearly budget, chapter number two is always the climate budget. So every year the uh, city council will see this and they put forward the climate budget uh, and it is, of course, then that it's the deputy mayor of finance that owns the budget. And uh, <clears throat> it presents the expected emission reduction from the adopted climate measures and clearly states what has to be done, by whom, when, and where relevant at what budgetary cost. So, uh, and when that's done, uh, the implementation starts, starts. And... Uh, if you, if, you, if you compare it with an action plan, with an action plan, you will probably see it after a year, if you're lucky, two years more normally. With the climate budget, every entity has to report on the status of their work with a measure three times a year. And it's coordinated, so they do that together with the ordinary financial report that they also do three times a year. So it's also in integrated in that cycle and i think that is uh, that is very important then we can see oh it's not working that well there and uh, that measure was perhaps not as intelligent or not as effective as we had thought then we do analysis and see what we have to come up with to uh, to have 
even better measure for next year or during a year. I'm familiar with city budgeting. So it, just explain how the nuts and bolts work. So your city council is about to set the budget. They have a choice between expanding a freeway or building a bike lane. How does the climate budget influence that? Uh, they can see that if this uh, world is being built, it will make it very difficult for them to achieve the climate goal in 2030. Then they will have see alternatives that make it much easier for them to reach the climate goals in 30 in 2030. So then we, we calculate uh, the effect of uh, that kind of new investment. And climate is then always a very important discussion when we are doing new investments. So, and uh, if you invest in something that will, uh, uh, and in the end uh, lead to increased uh, CO2 emissions, it will show in next year budget. So then you then you're not so happy f- for doing that because it makes it even more difficult to reach the goals. So I'm still curious about what compels them to ensure the climate part of the budget is a priority, because the example I can think of from my own city, and we're trying to create a budget, we're well into the process, but it was ironic because when the budget process started, which was just a month ago, um, there all the a lot of the major climate initiatives and actions were listed as optional in the budget. They were uh, un, uh, so-called unfunded. And there was a great big uproar uh, and city council reversed mid-budget process and the mayor did an omnibus bill and put all the climate actions back in. How do you avoid that? Uh, I think I think uh, the deepest answer to that is uh, that it is a broad political will to actually do something about the emissions, because I think this, I think something happened with the mindset of our politician when they set this goal of reducing climate by ninety-five percent. Because uh, it started the discussion. I think we are slowly getting there on national level as well. Uh, climate emission is not something we shall shall reduce with ten or thirteen or. 20%. It's something we should get rid of. We, it's not more or less widely uh, accepted that we are moving towards zero. And then they have a goal on reducing 95%. No sector can say that ah, uh, it's not so important with doing something in our sector. This should be the uh, transportation sector can't say that this should be the waste or the waste can't say this should be transportation. Every sector has to be responsible to come up with their plans. And uh, it was quite tough in the first years. But uh, when that mindset kind of, they realized this is, uh, this is for real. We are going to remove the emissions. We are seeking zero. Then uh, I think the, the work accelerated uh, quite uh, um, yeah, I think I think it it went from like being something nice to have to something fundamental for us. And uh, uh, I, when the climate budget was adopted uh, now in December, the for the seventh time, 
it was with a majority of 80% of the city council. And that is important. And there is a kind of a competition with the conservatives and the labor who will, who are doing best on, on climate issues. So I think that's great. Well, that makes, uh, I'm sure that would make other cities envious. Uh, what what are the mechanisms in the process that uh, also you've you've said the mindset has changed and that's probably it's easy to imagine that's one of the biggest things but what mm-hmm. are the mechanisms in the process are there carrots and sticks are there mandates are there incentives like how does it work uh, to you know to make it in my interest I'm one of your planners I'm one of your transportation people yeah. like what what are the mechanisms that uh, compel or encourage me. Uh, I think uh, the role of the climate agency is to work together with other agencies to come up with measures. So we have kind of a license to come and uh, bother everybody else <laughs> with uh, how it is going with your climate measures and try to uh, develop new measures, work together with them, help them, push them. And uh, then when things are in the budget, they are obliged to deliver. So there's a little bit of stick there. But uh, the carrot is that if they come up with measures that uh, it is more likely for them to to get money through the budget process if it is a part of the climate budget. So, so, so when the two or three first budget runs were done, we could show every entity that entities that had uh, put forward measures for climate, they had been budget winners last year. And so that's a little bit of carrot there. So, and of course, uh, there's, uh, when the mindset has more or less changed, people are so proud of the climate measures. Even if it's in the municipal's graveyards that has all the electrical machines, silence and nice. They are so, so proud and uh, there have been so great achievements there. Or in the, if it is in the building sector that has uh, electric excavators or in, uh, for instance, this year, Oslo will be the first capital in the world to have a zero, totally zero emission public transport. And now public transport agency is of course extremely proud of that so um, I, I think uh, we have been able to work together and um, we have been allowed to dive into other sector silos and talk climate with them so you've said you were successful. Just the, let's look at your big boxes just one more time. You were successful with buildings, and uh, the key solution appears to be heat pumps. But uh, tell me again, like, so what are the mechanisms there? Was it a mandate or was it incentive? How did you get such big uptake? Uh, on the building sector, so when we removed the oil pan, we had, um, <clears throat> uh, there was a grant uh, for that um, people could invest in their buildings for for more climate friendly heating and that that was one of the starting point and we kept that uh, all the way up until it uh, was forbidden 
So we try to help them to invest. To invest. Uh, and we have talked about uh, the incentives on um, transportation. Uh, the free passage in uh, the toll ring is, was extremely important. And also removing of parking lots for fossil cars and uh, uh, and of course, uh, you, you know, we have lanes that was only available for public transport and electric uh, vehicles. So they could get easier into the city than others. So it was a lot of incentive at the point. No, it's, we have gotten there that uh, more than 30% of the car population in Oslo is now electric. So we are... Uh, so... No, we can't have all, we don't need all those incentives anymore. So we are not trying to balance how to get rid of the last fossil fuels car before 2030. And the, and the last piece, just explain this to me again. You talked about electricity pricing when it comes yeah. to because that was used. Explain to me how that worked. Electricity prices has been very low for many years in Norway. And after the energy crisis, uh, they have risen. But uh, still... Uh, fossil fuels is far more expensive because the oil prices is also rising, and uh, so it's still much cheaper to drive an electrical vehicle than to drive a fossil car. And so you had your you had incentives though for uh, uh, electric cars nationally, though, right? Both nationally and locally and regionally it's on all levels. And I think the introduction of electrical cars was was a good example. Whole. Every um, kind of national level, regional level, and local level was able to push in the same, same direction. And when that happened, it's not that often, but when that happened, things actually uh, change. I have two more boxes I want to touch on. Uh, so you did bundle incineration of waste with uh, energy supply. Talk about your energy supply. How is that clean and what's happening there? Energy supply is uh, heating from uh, heat water uh, run system, uh, but uh, most of the heating is electricity uh, still. And uh, electricity is from hydropower. The municipality owns its own hydropower plants outside of Oslo, of course. And uh, <laughs> uh, the energy mix of Oslo is uh, 98% uh, renewables. So then it's, it's wind and hydro. So there's not much CO2 emission there. The, the one, the last box I want to talk about, and this is the one that leaves me scratching my head a little bit, and that is incinerating waste. Uh, yeah. How is that a good idea? Uh, Oslo has been incinerating waste uh, uh, for a long time. And uh, I think the oldest one is more than 30 years. I, even, I think it's even older. So uh, I, what I think the reason why is that uh, we had big problem with um, uh, landfilling. And uh, in 2009, I think Norway was among the first countries to forbid landfilling. So landfilling is actually forbidden. Then you have to do something with the waste. And incineration became a solution somewhere. But then you get CO2 emission. And uh, but luckily we have been able to invest in this carbon capture and storage. And uh, since, um, but uh, remind you, the landfills they have uh, 
big emissions from methane. And uh, we are still struggling and still uh, have some problem related to landfills that we closed down 20 years ago. So getting rid of landfills is a very good thing. But uh, what is also good about uh, the incineration of waste is when we get a carbon capture and storage facility in place, uh, 200,000 of the CO2 tons of the CO2 emissions from the uh, f- from the incineration plant will be come from plastic, also also fossil fuels, and two hundred thousand tons will come from biomaterials, wood, paper, etc. Uh, but the carbon capture will, uh, of course, capture ninety percent of the t- total of it. Then we will have a facility that actually are carbon negative. Hmm. So that will be. That it will be interesting, and I think IPCC has in their report said that uh, we will more or less, regardless of how good we will be in the future, need carbon negative solutions and carbon capture and on waste from incineration plan. I think is one of the better way of doing that. Just before we close out, do you do any? Uh, um, do you mine methane from your landfills, or do you do any anaerobic digestion with your waste at all? We we did that on methane, but I think we are, we are past that now. It's not enough meat left, so we are not just controlling it. But we have a biogas uh, plant, so the food uh, waste will go to the biogas plant, then to produce biogas. That is fueling uh, heavy vehicles, some buses, long distance, etc. So last part of our interview here, Heidi, uh, very much enjoyed this. How's the public responding to these goals? I think I, I know the answer because they're buying electric vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> but how is the public responding to these climate initiatives? I think it's important for us that uh, we can say that uh, the climate measures has done good for the city. It, Oslo has been a better city afterwards. It has given us less noise, less uh, air pollution, and a definitely more human-oriented uh, streets. A columnist wrote uh, in a newspaper a couple of years ago that Oslo smelled so nice in the summer now. Yes, of course, it didn't smell uh, diesel or gasoline anymore. It's, it's, um, it smelled flowers. So I think uh, people like to have been able to walk around in the city and uh, have uh, what we would call ordinary city, a good city life. So we are also increased numbers of playing gardens for young people. And um, so, yes, I think it's important that the majority of the population says that the climate measures has uh, made the city Better. Why is it important for cities to take action? And I ask this with full knowledge that from where I come from, our provincial or state government uh, is really bad at climate change. <laughs> and, but our city has one of the most amazing plans in the whole country, uh, which is terribly ironic. But what, why is it important for cities to be so involved? And obviously, Oslo is a shining example. Yeah. 
I think it's important uh, because somebody has to do something. And I think uh, cities are very well positioned to do something because the majority of the population they want to tackle climate change, want to see change happening. And uh, that makes it easier for politicians to want it that as well, because their constituencies actually want it. And uh, uh, if you see, I think it goes for the cities in your country as well. We have a younger population. Uh, we innovate faster. So if we can find solution that could be used anywhere else, I think uh, the cities have uh, played a very, very important role. And there was a time when very little happened on national levels. So then I thought uh, cities were one of their really hope for the future. What are the biggest lessons you've learned that you can share with other cities? You've gone through this for quite a while. You're deep into the process, reasonably successful. What are the biggest, hardest lessons you've learned? I think it's extremely important that confronting climate change is about creating better cities and a better quality of life. I think the climate discussion has too long been about sacrifice. No, it's about creating better cities, and that's important. And I think the second is that um, uh, you must not underestimate the importance of setting um, ambitious targets because it do something with your mindset. And I think one of the measures we haven't talked about, uh, which has been a very, very strong lesson for us, that is that you should never ever underestimate how much change you can make by being a demanding customer. Uh, because as, as a city, we buy a lot. 20% of all construction activities in the city is done by the city. So uh, the key strength of a market is their adaptability. So if we can play that to that strength, I, I think it, it's surprising how much change you can create in a short, short time. And we have, we have used that very strategic. And that's a very important lesson. I'm sorry, I was going to close, but I have one more question. Yeah. That is, do you use, uh, do, do you have a local building code? Do you have the power to compel people to build to a certain level of efficiency? No, we have national, but I would love to have a local one. <laughs> so we are quite envious of some of, I think, American cities have a local building code. We don't, but uh, we can encourage and um, we can, what we build. Uh, we demand that that is done without uh, emission, zero construction sites, et cetera, et cetera. So is the national code good? It was good 10 years ago. So it's outdated. So we, we like to see a stronger national code. Well, Heidi, I really appreciate your time. Uh, and I think I'll end by saying, so uh, do you drive? And if you drive, what do you drive? I don't drive. I walk. <laughs> Cycle as well? Yes, but uh, an ordinary day, I walk. Everything is in walking distance. What's your mode breakdown in Oslo? Your mode of transport? What's the breakdown for the city? Um, We are city walkers. So the biggest chunk, uh, one of the biggest uh, chunk is walking uh, up to 40%. Uh, And then it is uh, public transport. Uh, and then I think it's uh, vehicles, and then it's bike. But uh, what is really special is that we are 
a city of walkers. I think the national, I see if I can find the numbers for you, the National Transport Survey shows that 30% of all daily trips in Oslo is done by walking. Hmm. So that's, um, and that exploded actually under the pandemic. So people walk, uh, walk longer distances than they did uh, four or five years ago. It's funny, I was in Vitoria Gastiz in Spain, and uh, it's a fairly comp- very old city, compact city. They were actually, uh, they shared a title you received recently as the greenest city in Europe. Or mm-hmm. yeah. is. Uh, but uh, what I realized when I was there is you could walk from one end of town to the other because it was about four and a half kilometers or something like that. Uh, no, no. We, we are not that dense. So it's... Um... <laughs> No, it's uh, more like 40 kilometers from the one end to the other. But uh, so, but uh, a lot of things are, um, if you can combine uh, public transport and walking, you can get anywhere. Heidi, thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I think it's very important to share uh, this work because not enough uh, interaction between yep. uh, cities like this happens. And yes. your story is very inspiring. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. Very nice talking to you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Today, Oslo city managers take pride in their climate contributions, and Oslo is on the road to eliminating emissions from heating, transportation, and waste. Our thanks today to Heidi Sorensen for her insights. This has been a Green Energy Futures full interview. Please like and subscribe to our channel for more stories on inspiring people building a sustainable future. For Green Energy Futures, I'm David Dodge.